From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. This winter so far is shaping up to be a really good one for the Colorado River Basin. Snowpack levels across the upper basin were 135% of normal as of mid-January. And the atmospheric river that has been dumping moisture across the west doesn't seem to be ready to stop just yet. But there's still a long way to go before this winter is over, and conditions can change. And more than that, one good winter is unlikely to append the trend of drought that's been increasingly impacting the entire American West over the past few years. In particular, recent predictions from the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation have shown that Lake Powell's water levels may fall below the level needed to produce power through its hydroelectric dam as soon as this summer. And it's likely that it's going to happen before the end of this year. Essentially, this is going to shut down one of the most important sources of power in the West. This is called deadpooling, and it's a serious risk at a time in which climate change is causing uncertainty in the cycles that fill reservoirs around the world. Joining us today to talk about this and other matters of water in the West is Sarah Porter. She's the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Sarah Porter, welcome. Good to be here with you. Sarah, I've been doing a lot of snow shoveling this winter. (laughs) Um, I think that a lot of people will look at this winter and go, oh, thank goodness, the drought is over. But are we actually out of the woods on, on this problem? The short answer is no. <laughs> the long answer is, of course, more complicated. But what we should start with is what we mean by drought. And so sometimes when we're talking about drought, we're really thinking about the amount of water that is falling on the ground where we are. At other times when we're talking about drought, we're talking about water supply. Uh, in, In terms of, so there may be, that's to say there may be lots of places that won't be in an official state of drought in the coming months because they are receiving average or above average precipitation. But that doesn't translate into uh, all our problems are over with respect to our water supply. Because the reservoirs right now across the West are many are historic lows, right? In, In particular, the two big reservoirs on the Colorado River that hold water for the lower basin. Um, So the the whole Colorado uh, watershed sharing states include Utah, my home state, Arizona, I'm in Phoenix, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, California, and then the uh, southern part of Nevada, as well as um, we're sharing water with northern Mexico. And so... um, The two big reservoirs, Lake Powell, which is at Lee's Ferry in the sort of the north, sort of northeastern part of Arizona, and then Lake Mead, which is over between Las Vegas and Arizona. Those two big reservoirs are the ones that are at um, alarmingly low levels where they're approaching that point that you just mentioned where hydropower couldn't be produced. Um, and even lower than that, a point at which water can't be delivered off the reservoir to water users downstream. 
And hydropower couldn't be produced because the water is so low that it's it's below where the generator, the, the turbines are, right? Right. Or And, and I am no engineer, <laughs> but it's my understanding it's, it's not enough water to turn those turbines. So it's a combination of low water and also just the, um, the force of water. Because the turbines are usually under the water level and there's usually a lot of water above them, which, yeah, right. okay. Right, exactly. So what happens when that happens? If we, the, the word for this is deadpooling, right? Yeah, there are two, actually two levels for, and every power generating reservoir has these two levels. And one is minimum hydropower pool or minimum power pool. And that's above deadpool. So that's the point at which the, you know, where the lake level falls so low that no more power can be produced. And that's one you know, bad situation that we don't want to get to. And the other one then would be Deadpool, which is below minimum power pool. If with either of these, you know, both the two big reservoirs, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, the dams are Hoover Dam at Lake Mead and Glen Canyon Dam at Lake Powell. If if those if either of those gets to minimum power pool, that's just a big loss of power production. Uh, the main entities that rely on that power production tend to be rural co-ops and Native American tribes, not so much the big cities. Well, let, let's talk about the power first and let's go back to the, the total Deadpool um, because it's a little bit to me, it's a little bit heartbreaking because hydroelectric power is, you know, it's one of the, and I'm making the little air quotes here, the good yeah. sources of power. Yeah, the right? renewable. The, yeah. The, um, yeah, yeah. And so this would not just be a loss of power, but this would be a loss of the kind of power that is a renewable source and that arguably is much uh, much better for us in the long term than, than fossil fuel generated power. Yeah, that's right. I think we're... We've learned a lot about hydropower in the hundred something years, you know, that our country, that the U.S. has made big investments in it. And people are taking another look at at hydropower as a good, clean, renewable energy when it requires such dramatic engineering of natural river systems. So it it is different from some other kinds of power production in that it doesn't produce greenhouse gases but it does have um dramatic impacts uh on the functioning of a river system so it's it's maybe moving out of the you know the the good good category into something <laughs> one it's, slot over it's the um, better than bad category yeah, now yeah <laughs> and 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 i'm i am a more of a water expert i'm not really an energy expert but i you know i get to be with energy experts a lot and and it, it typically the backup power for lost hydropower is isn't going to be um, available renewable power supplies at this point where we are now in power in the development of different um, power sources. So we have this twofold problem. We have this low water level in the reservoirs that's threatening both energy production and also downstream water. 
when that happens, when when downstream water just stops flowing in the amounts that it needs to flow to fulfill everybody's needs, what what happens then? It sounds I mean, it really sounds like the beginning of like a post-apocalyptic <laughs> Well, Script. fortunately, yeah, yeah. I, I think because we've had a long time to see this coming, the impacts won't be apocalyptic, but they are too terrible to to allow ourselves to get there. And so I, you know, I think about water not running or just running at a trickle through the Grand Canyon, through, you know, one of the nation's most iconic natural areas. and an important place for endangered fish species and and its communities all along the river that rely on water from that river as their water supply. And those impacts would be very dramatic. It, it would impact the, the national you know, food supply. Um, it would have terrible consequences for those important uh, agricultural economies. At the same time, cities have seen the possibility of this kind of what used a few years ago we referred to as a black swan event and so to some degree cities have had some time to line up backup supplies and to line up plans for an emergency response to this so the there are a lot of large populations, LA, Denver, Phoenix, um, Tucson, San Diego, that rely on water imported from the Colorado River to, to those cities. And those cities have had opportunities to get ready for, you know, just in case this happens. I think the impacts would be disruptive, but not as nearly as disruptive as they would be to the communities that rely on water directly from the river. Where are those other sources for those cities? Another source of supply that all of these places are pretty accustomed to using is groundwater, water in aquifers. And so that's a in the in Arizona there's been an effort with some success to push cities to treat water in the ground as the backup long-term savings account of water in case of need rather than as a supply that's you you know that's deployed ordinarily and so groundwater can be a good backup supply in some instances if a city has got you know got ready for that invested in the necessary well fields got to drill expensive wells you need infrastructure to move that water to to the where, you know, to the treatment plants. Um, and then finally, increasingly cities are looking at reclaimed water. In other words, wastewater that has been treated to a high standard, high quality standard um, for, for another water supply that can be either integrated into the usual portfolio or uh, treated and stored in aquifers or, or used in a way to make it more available in a time of shortage. And Vegas has been pretty successful with that, right? Yeah, Las Vegas is an interesting case. Um, Las Vegas, it's really the Southern Nevada Water Authority. So it's it's a number of cities in the Las Vegas area in Clark County. They treat their wastewater 
and then put that treated water into Lake Mead, which is right next door, and they get credits. So that enables the Southern Nevada Water Authority to withdraw more water than is simply allocated um, to, to the area, to Southern Nevada. That is putting treated water back into Lake Mead and then withdrawing more water from Lake Mead. That's that program. Other cities are looking at, um, for a lot of cities in central Arizona take that treated water and they put it in aquifers. Cities can put their uh, treated wastewater in the ground and accrue groundwater storage credits. And then later, if needed, they can cash in those groundwater storage credits and use that groundwater. They can also, by the way, sell those storage credits. So there's a little bit of a market that creates some flexibility for water providers in a time of shortage. You mentioned uh, desalination. How big of a part of our water future in the West is desalination going to be, do you think? That's a good question. So I guess I would start with the fact that not every state in the West has access to a coastline. <laughs> and that makes it a little more challenging. You know, California has a very long coastline, but Utah, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, Wyoming, uh, you know, we don't have coastlines. So um, benefiting from desalinated ocean water requires one of two things. It would require either an exchange with an entity that has a coastline, so that uh, the, the water users, for example, in Phoenix might build a desal plant um, for a community on a coastline and then take an exchange of that community's Colorado River water in exchange for building and operating a desal plant for the community. Or it would require actually moving the desalinated ocean water. W water is very heavy. If you've ever had to carry a couple gallons of water, more than a block or two, you know it's very, very heavy. It tends to be somewhat corrosive. So moving water requires a lot of energy, and it requires uh, kind of heavy-duty infrastructure that's expensive, like pipes or concrete canals. So for that reason, desalinated ocean water while I think it will be part of the solution for the future Southwest, it's not the, the first solution. It, it, it will take a, a big investment in energy and in infrastructure to make uh, desal really pay off. By the same token, a, a little bit of desal in a portfolio can make a big difference. You know, paying that premium to have a little extra, you know, just that quantity of desalination and spread the cost of that much more expensive water over a large user base, that can make sense. That can help ensure a city that it has sufficient water supplies to meet demand. For the most part, in the Colorado Basin, the water-challenged Western United States, agriculture is still the largest water-using sector. And it's unlikely that a farmer would be able to uh, profitably use really expensive ocean, desalinated ocean water as the primary source of water supply for agriculture. Now, let's talk about that a little. Farmers and ranchers use about 80% of the Colorado River's water. 
Um, they also hold some of the most senior legal rights to that water. One of the proposals being considered for solving this problem or a beginning to chip away at it at least is paying farmers and ranchers not to take water out of the river. Do you think that's one of the most likely next steps for addressing this issue? At this point, we haven't reached the price point that makes paying farmers, at least in the lower basin, so in Arizona and California and northern Mexico, um, that makes this option appealing to farmers. The, the price tag that's currently placed on those um, millions, you know, the acre feet of water being uh, that could be conserved in the reservoirs is too low to really incentivize growers. But there are interesting um, partnerships between agricultural districts and cities. One of the, the best known is between Palo Verde Irrigation District in California and the, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, where MET pays farmers to fallow fields in times of shortage so that the, the water that's not used in those fallowing, uh, you know, from the fallowed fields can be available for municipal users. And those kind that, that won't work everywhere. It, it doesn't necessarily work for every agricultural economy to rotationally fallow fields. But where it works, that can be a win-win situation for both the farmers who get remunerated for fallowing and for the cities that have, you know, a more resilient or dependable supply of water. But it won't work everywhere. And, uh, you know, I think as so far, the U.S. and the water users in the Colorado Basin haven't stepped up to the price tags that the 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 farmers in southern you know the southern part of California and Arizona are mentioning to to let compensated following be the big solution well and then you know there's always every solution has a couple of problems that go along with it too right we pay farmers to follow the their fields um, that creates more water downstream but it also creates less agricultural products right right exactly 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 right. And that, that can translate into higher costs for the food that is produced, you, you know, and that can have an impact. I mean, we're talking about agricultural regions that the entire United States relies on. Uh, Yuma is, is nicknamed the winter vegetable capital of the, of the world. Um, Imperial Valley is a place of, you know, immense agricultural production. These are significant, you know, growing regions. Right. Now, um, there's a lot of attention on the Colorado Water Compact. This is this 100 and now one year old agreement um, about how the water that is in the basin is going to be divvied up. But the West looks a lot different now than it did 100 years ago when this thing was put together, doesn't it? It does. Um, when the Colorado Compact and the Colorado Compact merely allocated the a, a presumed amount, a volume of water in the from the Colorado system between the upper and lower basins. So 
on top of the compact, we have years and years of established water rights, primarily agricultural. Um, we have Supreme Court cases that uh, particularly divvied up water in the lower basin between California and Arizona, and Nevada, and, and um, specifically the Colorado River Indian tribes along the main stem. We have years and years uh, of laws, court cases, and then agreements on top of the Colorado Compact, agreements among the seven states or among subsets of the seven states for managing the Colorado River. This is also thorny, and it actually gets to something that I really wanted to ask you about. You started your career as a litigator, and then you moved over uh, to the state office of the National Autobahn Society for Arizona, which to me at least seems sort of like an idyllic role in ecological advocacy. <laughs> it sounds really wonderful. I'm sure there was issues. But but then you made this move, um, I, I gather, in, in about 2015 into water policy. And it seems like you just plopped yourself right into the middle of one of the thorniest issues in the world, one of the most contentious issues in the world and like legally so complicated. Because as you say, we have the compact, we have Supreme Court decisions, we have individual water rights, many of which are contested over generations and generations. What the heck was the draw for you (laughs) in doing this? (laughs) I love being asked that question. Thank you. You know, um, as I as I got interested in how to actually make a difference in protecting critical habitats, at when I was at the National Audubon Society, that I got involved with other the other Audubon offices throughout the Intermountain West, and we recognized that protecting riparian, or other, uh, in other words, streamside habitat, was the biggest thing that we could do to help protect species. And that got me really interested in water policy. So from there, I, it was like falling down the, uh, the rabbit hole. And <laughs> water policy in the West is quite captivating. Fights over water have, have, are really the outline of the history of the American West. Um, it's bound up in so many stories Native Amer- for Native American communities who are here way before uh, any settlers uh, ever arrived. The water was had such centrality. Um, you'll I often hear Native Americans say, "Water is life." You know this recognition that water is is everything, and all of those elements are what make water absolutely captivating. And what could be more fun than spending all one's time thinking about a complex adaptive system? You know, the West is only going to continue to grow population-wise. Is there a future in your mind in which we are collectively using water so wisely that it's no longer a fight or or no longer an emergency? Or is this part of the future for the foreseeable future? 
there will always be competition for water supplies in the West because it is the limited resource. We've got plenty of land, we've got plenty of sunshine, you know, but but we don't have plenty of water. It will there will always be competition for water. Can we get out of this emergency mode that we've been in for I don't know at least five years, maybe longer? Yes, we can. We can get out of the emergency mode by coming together on an understanding that the Colorado River and other rivers for that matter don't provide as much water as we've been counting on, reducing overall demand as a result and um, you know, adjusting our expectations. That is not easy. That means that some people's expectations for water can't be met. That's you know that's where we are now. We're we're going through a prolonged adjustment period that will inevitably be painful for some water users. But can we get there? Yeah, I, I have every confidence that we can. That's Sarah Porter. She's the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Sarah, thank you. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.